this looks like a microcosm of America to me. I didn't vote for Obama, um, basically because I couldn't figure out what his agenda was. He wanted to scream, change, 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 change what? Barack Obama was elected in 2008. I was in the Depression for a week because I knew the country was going to be even further on the skids than it's ever been. Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people who are thereupon absolved for, from any further obedience. Every time Obama comes on the TV, which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch a channel to the Hallmark Channel to figure he's gone, then I switch it back. It's the policies, it's the socialism, it's the Marxism. We are done backing up. Done. This president's willing to be obsequious to our adversaries, to denigrate our allies. It's his core philosophy of being anti-American. It's a lot like uh, Germany, Pro, you know, post-war, pre-war Germany, when they said, go Hitler, and then they thought, oh, crap, this guy's insane. Next April, we're going to celebrate the commemoration of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And if uh, things don't change sometime during that commemoration, maybe it's going to give folks ideas about starting it up again. I can't pace around the house gritting my teeth and taking Xanax anymore. i got to get out here and, and do what I can. And that way when the purges do start, they'll know who I am and where to come find me. May 7th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osman, and today, David, we're giving them best of the best. Yes, and the best of the best is brought to you by Loglo Land. Yes, the massive food court just off the freeway in Fun Fun Town. You want to stop off this week at Ash and Onion, the home of the Johnny Cup. Thai Food Mary's offering contagious eating. Friar McWall Clocks, where time loses its meaning. Of course, Tire Biters Brew Pub, that's ales for any ailment. And Potemkin Village Chicken. It's the outside that's good. Hey, let's get right at it. Holy moly, listen to this. Most young adults today don't pray, don't worship, and don't read the Bible, a major survey by a Christian research firm shows. If the trends continue, quote, the millennial generation will see churches closing as quickly as GM dealerships, says Tom Rainer, president of Lifeway Christian Resources. In the group survey of 1,218 to 29-year-olds, 72% say they're really more spiritual than religious. Among the 65% who call themselves Christian, many are either mushy Christians or Christians in name only, Rainer says. Most are just indifferent. The more precisely you try to measure their Christianity, the fewer you find committed to the faith. Here's some key findings in the phone survey, which was conducted in August and released recently. 65% rarely or never pray with others, and 38% almost never pray by themselves. 65% rarely or never attend worship services. 67% don't read the Bible or sacred texts. The study found 7 in 10 Protestants ages 18 to 30, both evangelical and mainline, who went to church regularly in high school, said they quit attending by age 23. And 34% of those had not returned, even sporadically, by age 30. Well, you know, America is the most church-going nation in the world. Still is. 
This looks like a different trend. It looks like people are becoming more spiritual. I know to some really deep evangelicals, spiritual means new age, and new age means the devil is speaking through their mouths. That's the devil's crystal, the devil's pyramid, the devil's word, holism. I wonder if it's that. I wonder if there'll be a return. Maybe it's Maybe it's the materialism. Maybe it's all these zillions of images that are constantly besieging us, none of which are even very spiritual, let alone religious. Maybe there's no time for religion. Maybe the discipline is broken down. Had to go to church every Sunday or get whipped or whatever it was. No, that's not true anymore. There's a new temple. It's called the Super Bowl or something very much like it. So I don't know. I mean... um, L. Ron Hubbard said, you want to make money, start a religion. Well, Scientology is a religion, at least officially, because it doesn't pay taxes. So the federal government comes along and says, this is a religion. And it's doing well, you know, and some of the other pseudo-religions are just clomping along. But to be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or whatever takes some serious thought. And people just probably just don't have time, or maybe they just don't have the attention span. And here's an interesting take on Arizona's recent um, anti-immigration law by one of my favorite reporters, Greg Palast. He did it for truthout.org, a real cool site. The way the media plays the story, it was a wave of racist anti-immigrant hysteria that moved Arizona Republicans to pass a sick little law signed recently, requiring every person in the state to carry papers proving they are U.S. citizens. Don't buy it. Anti-Hispanic hysteria has always been as much a part of Arizona as a saguara cactus and excessive air conditioning. What's new here is not the politicians' fear of a xenophobic teabag uprising. What moved GOP Governor Jan Brewer to sign the Soviet-style show-me-your-papers law is the exploding number of legal Hispanics, U.S. citizens all, who are daring to vote and daring to vote Democratic by more than two to one. Unless this demographic locomotive is halted, Arizona Republicans know their party will soon be electoral toast. In 2008, working for Rolling Stone with civil rights attorney Bobby Kennedy, our team flew to Arizona to investigate what smelled like an electoral pogrom against Chicano voters, directed by one Jan Brewer. Brewer, then Secretary of State, had organized a racially loaded purge of the voter rolls that would have made Catherine Harris blush. Beginning after the 2004 election under Brewer's command, no less than 100,000 voters, overwhelmingly Hispanics, were blocked from registering to vote. In 2005, the first year of the great brownout, one in three Phoenix residents found their registration applications rejected. I asked Brewer's office, had she busted a single one of those thousands of allegedly illegal voters? Did she turn over even one name to the feds for prosecution? No. Not one. Which raises the question, were these disenfranchised voters the criminal non-citizens Brewer tagged them, or just the not-quite-white voters given the Jose Crow treatment and trapped in document-chase trickery? The answer was provided by a federal prosecutor who was sent on a crazy hunt all over the western mesas looking for these illegal voters. He said, we took over 100 complaints. We investigated for almost two years. I didn't find one prosecutable voter fraud case. The prosecutor, David Inglesias, is a prosecutor no more. 
When he refused to fabricate charges of illegal voting among immigrants, his firing was personally ordered by the President of the United States, George W. Bush, under orders from his boss, Carl Rove. Inglesis' jurisdiction was next door in New Mexico, but he told me that Rove and the Republican chieftains were working nationwide to whip up anti-immigrant hysteria with public busts of illegal voters, even though there were none. They wanted some splashy pre-election indictments, Inglesias told me. The former prosecutor himself, a Republican, paid the price when he stood up to this vicious attack on citizenship. But Secretary of State Brewer followed the Rove plan to a T. The weapon she used to slice the Arizona voter rolls was a 2004 law known as Proposition 200, which required proof of citizenship to register. It's important to see the Republicans' latest legislative horror show, sanctioning cops to stop residents and prove citizenship, as just one more step in the party's desperate plan to impede Mexican-Americans from marching to the ballot box. State Senator Russell Pierce, the Republican sponsor of the latest ID law, gave away his real intent, blocking the vote, when he said, There is a massive effort underway to register illegal aliens in this country. How many? Pierce's PR flack told me five million. All Democrats, too. Again, I asked Pierce's office to give me their names and addresses from their phony registration forms. I'd happily make a citizen's arrest of each one on camera. Pierce didn't have five million names. He didn't have five. He didn't have one. The illegal voters, wetback welfare moms, and alien job thieves are just GOP website wet dreams, but their mythic PR power helps the party's electoral hacks chop away at voter rolls and civil rights with little more than a whimper from the Democrats. Indeed, one reason I discovered that some Democrats are silent is that they are in the game themselves. In New Mexico, Democratic Party bosses tossed away ballots of Pueblo Indians to cut native influence in party primaries. But what's wrong with requiring folks to prove they're Americans if they want to vote and live in America? The answer is because the vast majority of perfectly legal voters and residents who lack ID sufficient for Ms. Brewer and Mr. Pierce are citizens of color, citizens of poverty. According to a study by Professor Mart Barreto of Washington State University, minority citizens are half as likely as whites to have the government ID. The numbers are dreadfully worse when income is factored in. But that's the point, isn't it? Not to stop non-citizens from entering Arizona. After all, who else would care for the country club lawn but to harass folks of the wrong color? Democratic blue. I've been inundated with all these marvelous videos on the web about Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and all the thievery. And, you know, it's, it's the Mumser's Ballet. And I thought, well, I'll gather all of these together and I'll make this really great collage and et cetera, and et cetera. And as it comes right down to, Ben Craw did a, a marvelous collage of this, of this event on Huffington Post. And uh, we're going to play it for you right now. Live now to a Senate hearing with former and current executives at the investment bank Goldman Sachs. Good morning, everybody. Our subcommittee's goal is to construct a record of the facts to deepen public understanding. Let me just explain in very simple terms what synthetic CDOs are. It's the la-la land of ledger entries. It's gambling. You are the bookie. You are the house. Wild, wild west. Less oversight than a pit boss in Las Vegas. You think it's so complicated? And you think you're so smart? My name is Fabrice Tour, and I work at Goldman Sachs. If you'll take a look at the, the following email. Mr. Chairman, there are, there are about eight emails in here. Take a look. It's at a 
You have the document. Now answer my question. The amount of this, of how much, how dubious, how, I'm on 155. No, you're Where's 105? This is the one that you have to read first. Okay, look what your sales team was saying about Timberwolf. Boy, that Timberwolf was one shitty deal. Mr. Shitty Chairman. Deal. Shitty deal. Shitty deal. You didn't tell him you thought it was a shitty deal. You knew it was a shitty deal. It was a shitty deal. That shitty deal. A shitty deal. A shitty deal. One shitty deal. Shitty deal. We're going to stay here as long as it takes. Who's the driver here? Who, who made the decision? We worked as a team. Well, you work as a team, but somebody leads the team. Who led the team? We worked as a team. Who led the team? Who was the leader of your team? Are you implying I, I, that you can only have one person leading teams? Well, uh, I um, Thank you very much, Dr. Coburn. Senator McCaskill. Most of America doesn't understand what happened. I um, want to make clear that I understand. I want to try to continue with the analogy of you all being the house or the bookie. Most people in America understand about a football bet. I've usually bet on MU versus KU. I went to MU and I care about MU. Whether you're betting in an office pool that's illegal or whether you're betting in Las Vegas. Can I just, instead of using the bookie analogy, just talk about... I think your question about profits. You all are the house. You're the bookie. Well, I mean, I don't know why we need to dress it up. It's just a bet. You can say what it want, but it is gambling. I'm not going to go down to bookie and all that line, but yeah. you're basically gambling. Who chose ACA in Abacus? Who chose ACA? Well, if, I, if I may, uh, ACA selected the reference portfolio. ACA. ACA. I say ACA. Why didn't you use ACA? Who is it that picked ACA? Who picked ACA? Oh, ACA, uh, Senator. ACA, uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Abacus or Abacus? Abacus, sorry. Abacus. By the way, these are, this is the same one that your folks called shitty, how shitty it was. You know, instead of Wall Street, it looks more like Las Vegas. First of all, Senator Pryor, I, I think most people in Las Vegas would take offense at having uh, <clears throat> Wall Street compared to Las Vegas. <clears throat> That's a fair point. Very good. That's very good. Excuse the language. Shitty. It's inappropriate and it's also discourteous to us. We're not that stupid. I'm going to keep using that word, shitty. It's a shitty deal. God, what a shitty deal. God, what a piece of crap. We now will call our final witness for today's hearing, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Goldman Sachs. I look forward to your questions. I'm deeply troubled by shitty deal, shitty transaction, crap loans, piece of crap, piece of crap, crappy securities. Is there not a conflict? In the context of market making, that is not a conflict. The thing that we are selling to them is supposed to give them the risk they want. Yeah, and that's the part that's very confusing to folks, because they, they think you're fiduciaries. Uh, then, not in the market making context. The people who were coming to us wanted to have a security that gave them exposure to the housing market, and that's what they got. This is a shitty deal. This is crap. It's just a function of the price in the market. It's a piece of crap. Well, you're betting against that same security. Senator, you keep using the word betting against. I'm not trying to be resistant, but we to make sure you do your terminology. You're, as a market maker, we are buying from sellers and selling to buyers. But I'm saying where well, you're not selling it to anyone else. You are selling to somebody and you are taking the opposite position you're just not troubled by it that's the bottom line i'm not troubled by the fact that we market make as principal and you want people to trust you senator i think people why would people us. i won't trust you okay we're, we're, going senator, we're going round and round we're going round and round on this i've been talking sports analogies today because i think there's a lot about this that relates to gambling on a sporting event. Claire's right. It's just like betting on a sports event. Going out to Caesar's Palace to the sports book and making a wager on the outcome of an athletic contest.
just like you bet on a football game. Maybe it's not a level playing field. None of that seems like even Steven. None of that seems like you're an honest bookie. It seems like hamsters in a cage trying to get to compensation. I've been sitting here trying to, 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 to really figure out a good analogy. I don't know, we're like we're speaking a different language here. It's not like selling a lame horse that, or an unsound horse. It's not like selling a, a, no, that a bin of corn that's, that's been right. through a cow and you're calling it corn when it's really something else. Right. I'm just trying to. I'm trying to explain it. I'm trying to explain it, and I'm. I wish I were better to to explain it. I, I can tell you that that um, there's some things in in my job as U.S. Senator from Montana uh, that don't make a lot of sense. A bunch of stuff that doesn't make any sense. That's the part that troubles me the most. I think the language junk or crap, crap or junk, and words even saltier than those. If that doesn't concern you, that concerns me, we shouldn't be selling crap. We thank our witnesses, Mr. Blankfine, we thank you. It's been a long day and we stand adjourned. Michael Steele of the Republican National Committee has done it again. He's taken a few days off from those virtual lesbian strip clubs Uh and has put together a fundraising letter that looks like a census form. The Republican Party is seeking input and money from GOP voters seemingly under the guise of the U.S. Census Bureau. Ooh, strength is, quote, strengthening our party for the 2010 elections is going to make a massive grassroots effort all across America. That is why I have authorized a census to be conducted of every congressional district in the country, GOP Chairman Michael Steele says in a letter mailed nationwide. It gets worse, okay, because this really looks like a census form. The letter was sent in plain white envelopes marked Do Not Destroy, official document labeled 2010 Congressional District Census. The letter uses a capital C, the same as the Census Bureau. It also includes a census tracking code and... Get this, all right? The letter makes a plea for money and accompanies a form asking voters to identify their political leanings and issues important to them. There are no disclaimers that participation in the GOP effort is voluntary. Participation in the government census is required by law. Failure to participate, $5,000 fine, rarely enforced. Okay, so Sarah Sendak, a Republican National Committee spokesman, said the letter was not an attempt to mislead voters. She says the document clearly indicates it's an RNC mailer. Well, how about that, David? Yeah, well, I, I've tried to read my copy of this Oh, now. you have a, you have a copy? Uh, our, my census tracking code is number S. That's a, a 10HR098. And uh, it says here, this is an official document. No, really, Pete, it says, Your participation is greatly needed and appreciated. Strengthening our party, capital P, for the 2010 elections will take a massive grassroots effort. Yeah. As a key facet of of our overall campaign strategy, the Republican Party is conducting a census, capital C, of congressional districts all across America. The opinions registered in this document will be used to help ensure that our Republican leaders and candidates are specifically addressing those issues most important to voters in your area. Well, if I wasn't a really sensitive and on top of it political type, I'd be fooled by that, i.e. if I was just an average person. I think if you're an average person and you get this in the mail, you've heard a lot of stuff on television. Here on Section 5, which is the back page. Section 5. <laughs> yeah. Section 8 comes next. There's a four-page document. Section 5, Census Certification and Reply. One, can the Republican Party count on your support to help strengthen our party for the 2010 elections? There's a box that says yes. 
There's no box that says no. No, there is no box. But that I says thought no. the GOP said only no. Maybe this is their turning. No, they're I, becoming the party of yes. But they do hereby. One has to hereby certify that the answers <laughs> to the enclosed census are my own and sign it. So just to let you know, here's the major issues here. On would you like national defense? Major issues in national defense, or, or do you, or here's one for what you. About, what about what uh, about same-sex marriage laws will make well, people that, marry horses? This is this is. Do you believe this is number sixteen in section three? Do you believe the Republican Party should continue to embrace social issues? Yes, no, undecided. If yes. <laughs> Please register your opinion on the following social issues. I want to pretend to be this person. Okay, well, Number one. one is support, two is oppose, and three is no opinion. So okay. now, uh, here, here are the, there are six things plus other, of course. Go. Always the other. Always uh, the other, the okay. not me. <laughs> here we go. School prayer. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 school prayer. School I, prayer. Yeah, well, I think I oppose it, and then again, I don't. Okay. Uh, ban burning of the flag. No, you can burn the flag, but not in my backyard. Okay. Uh, ban human cloning. That's a tough one. I'm going to have to talk to my, my double about that. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, faith-based initiatives. Support, oppose, no opinion. Faith-based initiatives. Well, Bush pushed forward all those faith-based initiatives, and a lot of them turned out to be organizations that wouldn't let homosexuals in. So I'm going to have to say no. No on that one. Yeah. All right. Uh, ban all abortions. All abortions, all, all, all. including previous abortions, and everyone that's ever happened, and, and because the future, remember the crispy, um, uh, crispy bread, because right. the future can come uh -huh. to the, so all future abortions also have to be outlawed, and uh, prohibit same-sex marriage. Those are the six issues on social issues. Pro Aren't those great social pro issues? Prohibit, ban, ban, ban. There's yeah. three bans and one prohibit. And there's no support to speak of. But, Su support but, immunization of children. Uh, support Head Start. Support this, support that. No, it's just don't you dare get married to that man because you're a man, yeah. I think. Well, I, I just want to leave you with this one, one worry, yeah. okay, that the Republicans would like to leave you with. <laughs> They'd like to take your money and leave you with this. Do you worry that Russia is moving away from its relationship with the U.S. and trying to reestablish itself as a military and economic superpower. Ooh. And now, a pause in the busy day's activity. As the doctor leaves his little rectumary, walks out the marble path, covered with Aggies and cat's eyes from his youth. Down the long path of life, past the elm grove of superstition, and toward the true way. Yes, it's Dr. Whiplash, and he's come again to the font of perpetual resurrection to answer some of your questions. Dave, what's the first question? Well, I have a letter here from uh, a gentleman in uh, Flotsam's Mistake, New Jersey. <coughs> and uh, actually, he's been kind enough to send this letter in on a tape cassette for you, Doctor, so we'll hear his voice, and you can use his voice to help you analyze the problem. It's a novel idea. <coughs> Leave it to the Japs. Dear Dr. Whiplash, I am a Japanese businessman. Why have I written a before? 
So I still suffering from the same complaint. I only suffer in the office during the day. At night, I eat out and feel better. And although I can't sleep, it's because of a part of my noise. What should I do? Uh, still, uh, Hideo Gump. <sighs> Dear Hideo, your symptoms are shared by people other than your race. To wit, many executives complain to me uh, as suffering from flushing, blushing, running of the mouth, high stool, seat cramps, delayed borgerigmus, and shortness of pants. They also, like you, feel relieved of these symptoms away from the orifice. <clears throat> Can anything be done? Yes. And it should be done now. They, and you, Hideo, are suffering from farmer's lung, usually confined to barns and sponge warehouses. It is attributable to a hybrid fungus, which lodges in the massive air conditioning systems that supply oxygen of sorts to the big buildings that your daddy works in. Although the same bug can be found in home furnaces, it's often uh, re rendered ineffectual due to the fact that poor people can't afford air conditioning and are forced to run their furnaces to heat their homes during the summer. This fries the fungus. <clears throat> we doctor people use the word microsporifera funni in referring to this little pest, and literally it can be translated as funny spores, long known as the cause of Theodore's disease, running sores and athletes' feet. Recently, this microscopic troublemaker has also been blamed in the nasty disease labeled Hartman's palsy, formerly Strassman syndrome, the only cure for which is death. I'll answer any questions, dear friends. Just write me if you still have the strength. Until next week, this is Dr. Whiplash. I'm out for lunch. <laughs> Well, Pete, I don't know whether you caught the news uh, about cosmetic surgery. Uh, this is, of course, has been seriously impacted by the economic crisis. Yeah, because it's elective surgery. It is elect. Cosmetic surgery is a luxury item, said Dr. Michael F. McGuire, the president of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Ooh, ooh, yeah, I mean, he admits to it, ooh. Well, he, does look like a doctor, but he doesn't perform like one, I think. Something like that. Anyway, here are the statistics for uh, uh, nose jobs. Uh, the number of nose jobs fell 8% in 2009. Well, that's a big nose drop. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> thing. Yeah, it's a nose dive. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Dave. Uh, breasts, if you're interested in breasts. I who, am, of course. I'm a isn't? guy. The number of breast augmentation procedures fell 6%. Well, then that's actually... Don't even go you, there. Don't, don't go there, Phil. No. Sagged. Sagged uh, yeah. 6%. Mm, you mean the Screen Actors Guild. Let's yeah. move right on to liposuction. So much fat. <laughs> this is the New York Times. So much fat. So much less of it removed. Uh, va vacuumed up. Uh, liposuction dropped 19%. Did it say how much has been sucked Nine, up altogether? Nine, uh, I don't think they have well, that statistic. It's pretty horrifying. Let me give you my favorite liposuction okay. true story. Read about it in The Gray Lady many years yeah. ago. There was a liposuction clinic in Miami that was selling the fat to an organization that rendered it down for biodiesel. 
Mm. So I, I could be running so, on it right now. Oh, I could get off my fat ass, get in my mm. Mercedes that is powered by my fat ass. All right, I'm not finished with the uh, no, body body no, shape. No, keep Cal- going now. Improbably enough. Yeah, calves. 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 The the augmentation of calves has increased, but there were only like from 406 to 412 or something. Well, like the that. rumor is Schwarzenegger has calf implants. I got them got them in in Austria, so maybe it's because he's such a popular governor or not. Okay, go ahead. Now, lips. Uh, more people did plump their lips. I have a statistic that you'll be interested Plumped in. Plump their lips. Plump plump their lips. Yeah. Uh, and if you have an upper arm lift. Yeah. Uh, you know, that removes the jiggle. Those went up. I Those mean, went the up. jiggles went down, but the arms went up. Yeah, the arm, yeah right. Okay. Yeah, okay. The okay. jiggle procedures. Yes, yes it's the pits. Yeah. And then finally reaching the, the bottom, as it were, the buttocks, fewer people had their buttocks lifted last year. Do they, do they mean stolen? <laughs> but I was, I was just walking on the street, and all of a sudden this guy came by and stole my butt. Right? Yeah, just L- took, it right, took it right off me. Well, okay, here now just to finish this absurd thing, I, uh, but, yeah, I really don't like the whole idea of augmentation. Do you really? Well, yeah, I yes. think, it's a, per, think it's a personal decision. Yeah. I, I remember I was talking to one plastic surgeon a while ago. I said, why did you decide to become a plastic surgeon? He says, because you're never on call. I don't uh, carry a beeper. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, okay. The least uh, minimally invasive, right, uh, procedure is, of course, Botox. Botox, yes. Okay. Last year, there were 4,795,357 injections of Botox at about 400 bucks a piece. 4 million. Seven hundred and ninety-five thousand. No, 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 no. That's collagen. You got to go to collagen. You got to go to collagen. Now, surgery. No, I know that's the injection. That's the forehead. You're putting deadly toxins so that you can smile, regardless of how bad things are. And you're putting it right in your third eye. Yes. Now, some there is some good like. Uh, elective surgery going mm-hmm. on, a cosmetic surgery. It's cosmetic. not actually elective. A team of surgeons has carried out the world's first full face transplant on a young Spanish farmer unable to breathe or eat on his own since accidentally shooting himself in the face five years ago. Ooh, makes me shiver. During the 24-hour surgery, doctors lifted an entire face, including jaw, nose, cheekbones, muscles, teeth, and eyelids, and placed it mask-like onto the man, and he's doing fine.
same old game Down on your knees Try to romance her But you might as well Be a necromancer Everybody knows You ain't got the answer How to win At the game of love BP is doing everything they can to contain this ecological disaster for which they are totally responsible. They're building a containment dome, a four-story, 70-ton structure that the company plans to lower into place over one of the three leaks to catch the escaping oil and allow it to be pumped to the surface. What about the other two leaks? Well, when the company tried to install a shutoff valve at the site of one of the leaks recently, they found that the seas were too rough, therefore delaying the effort. And heavy winds damaged miles of floating booms laid out in coastal waters to protect the shoreline from the spreading oil slick, which is drifting towards the Alabama and Florida coasts and the Chandelier Islands off Louisiana's southern tip. Recently, lawyers representing environmental groups, workers from the oil rig, and fishermen who've been hurt by the leak leveled fresh accusations against BP as well as Transocean and Halliburton. Hmm, Halliburton's back. BP leased the rig from Transocean. Halliburton was providing several services on the rig, including cementing, which is a method of sealing the well to control pressure from the oil and gas beneath. I mean, if there's a scandal, Halliburton's got to get in. 
At least one worker who was on the oil rig at the time of the explosion on April 20th and who handled company records for BP said the rig had been drilling deeper than the 22,000 feet, even though the company's federal permit allowed it to go only 18,000 to 20,000 feet. Hmm. BP strongly denied the claim that it was drilling deeper than was allowed. The allegation surrounding the permitted depth is factually incorrect, said Andrew Gowers, a BP spokesman. Mr. Gowers said that the rig was permitted to drill to 20,211 feet and it drilled to 18,360 feet. Well, we'll see where that goes. Another worker familiar with the rig told the lawyers that the company had chosen not to install a deep water valve that would have been placed about 200 feet under the sea floor. Much like blowout preventers, devices that are meant to seal leaks, this valve could have served as a cutoff of last resort in explosions. This is what the lawyer said. Huh. The company took their chances in not having the valve so they could save money, said Mike Pepperatoni, one of the lawyers representing the shrimpers and fishermen. When workers released the last valves that were holding back the natural gas that had built up in the well, the gas shot up the pipe and sprayed into the drilling rig, igniting the fireball that caused the deaths of 11 workers, injured others, and sank the rig. This according to the lawyers. BP and Halliburton declined to comment on the accusations. Oh, man. You know, this is just, this, is, this, this was a disaster waiting to happen. Why in the world are we drilling under the ocean offshore? How, how, how many miles would each of us have to sacrifice if we gave up the oil that came from offshore drilling? Uh, how many lights would we have to turn off? Uh, how many electrical, I don't know, use a lot of electricity to make aluminum. How many lawn chairs would I have to give up to make up for all of that oil that they're pumping under the ocean? I got to ask myself that question. You know, we live, we live in the age of electricity. Oil, 80% of oil is not used to drive cars. It's used to produce electricity. So we're going to have to reduce our electrical needs if we're going to reduce our dependence on oil. Hmm, waiting for that electrician or someone like him. Edward Marcotte is looking for drugs that can kill tumors by stopping blood vessels growth. And he and his colleagues at the University of Texas at Austin recently found some good targets, five human genes that are essential for that growth. Now they're hunting for drugs that can stop those genes from working. Strangely, though, Dr. Marcotte did not discover the new genes in the human genome, nor in lab mice or even fruit flies. He and his colleagues found the genes in yeast. On the face of it, it's just crazy, Dr. Marcotte said. After all, these single-cell fungi don't make blood vessels. They don't even make blood. In yeast, it turns out these five genes work together on a completely unrelated task, fixing cell walls. Dr. Marcotte and his colleagues have found genes associated with deafness in plants and genes associated with breast cancer in nematode worms. The scientists took advantage of a peculiar feature of our evolutionary history. In our distant amoeba-like ancestors, now I'm not sure I had an amoeba-like ancestor, but let's go with it, clusters of genes were already forming to work together on building cell walls and on other very basic tasks essential to life. Come to think of it, when I picture some of my relatives, they are kind of amoeba-like, so maybe I'll take that back. 
Many of those genes still work together in those same clusters over a billion years later, but on different tasks in different organisms. Studies like this offer a new twist on Charles Darwin's original ideas about evolution. Anatomists in the mid-1800s were fascinated by the underlying similarities of traits in different species. The fact that a bat's wing, for example, has all the same parts as a human hand. Darwin argued that this kind of similarity, also known as homology, was just a matter of genealogy. Bats and humans share a common ancestor, and thus they inherited limbs with five digits. Bats and humans with similar ancestors. Maybe that's why there's such a fascination with vampires. Some 150 years of research have amply confirmed Darwin's insight. Paleontologists, for example, have brought ambiguous homologies into sharp focus with the discovery of transitional fossils. A case in point is the connection between the blowholes of whales and dolphins and the nostrils of humans. Fossils show how the nostrils of ancestral whales move from the tip of the snout to the top of the head. In the 1950s, the study of homology entered a new phase. Scientists began to discover similarities in the structure of proteins. Different species have different forms of hemoglobin, for example. Each form is adapted to a particular way of life, but all descended from one ancestral molecule. When scientists started sequencing DNA, they were able to find homologies between genes as well. From generation to generation, genes sometimes get accidentally copied. Each copy goes on to pick up unique mutations, but their sequence remains similar enough to reveal their shared ancestry. A trait like an arm is encoded in many genes which cooperate with one another to build it. Some genes produce proteins that physically join together to do a job. In other cases, a protein encoded by one gene is required to switch on other genes. It turns out that clusters of these genes, sometimes called modules, tend to keep working together over the course of millions of years. But they get rewired along the way. They respond to new signals and act to help build new traits. Absolutely amazing, don't you think? Now, there are some people that say this is completely random. It's just evolution. It's just mutation and selection. And I'm, I'm sure that's operative. Obviously, it is. But what about the building blocks? I mean, these genes, DNA, this is immense amounts of information. Who put that pattern together? Is it a pattern? These are the questions we should be asking ourselves instead of should gays marry or should there be prayers in the school or should politicians wear lapel pins and their birth certificates around their neck? Let's get serious. I wait, yeah I wait 
Things are really smoking in Washington, D.C. Really? In Washington? Yeah, Washington, uh-huh. D.C. The D.C. Consul mm-hmm. has legalized medical marijuana and medical marijuana dispensaries for patients who qualify. Okay. No, and nobody's going to veto that? Well, no, th- that consul's of, of itself. That's I don't it. believe that can be overrun by the D.C. committee that they're run by in the Congress. I think that's all just budget and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think it's done. Well, the, the drug's widespread use, you know, is an open secret in the city, yeah, according to the um, According to uh, the, well, well, yeah, the, the, you know, somebody here, somebody right. Uh, studies have shown that it has one of the highest rates of use. Right, eleven percent of district residents admit to lighting up over the past year, in spite of heavy fines. According to federal surveys, that's who's figured it out. Okay. I'd like to have given that survey. Under the new bill, doctors would be allowed to recommend, but not prescribe. Recommend. So you recommend two ounces of the drug for use over a thirty-day period. Now, now. Medical marijuana is really strong, okay? I mean, it's duckine. 
So two ounces a month. Imagine what, what's going to happen when all those legislators, you know, all those guys in the Senate and the House start to, like, spark up during those long, dull sessions, right? Say, <laughs> hey, baby, let's get loose outside. Yeah. Come on. Hey, okay, excuse me, Mr. Speaker, but I just... I just flashed on the fact this is bullshit. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is bullshit. Wow, it could completely change the face of Congress. Here, light up, man. Oh, yeah, this is crazy, man. What are we voting on? Ooh. Hey, McCain, try this. <laughs> so McCain takes a, a drag. Yep. And he goes, Yep. I ran with who? <laughs> Oh boy, I'm waiting for that to happen. So they passed it, and it's uh, it's legal in D.C. Well, that, that's gonna that is gonna change our legislative um, schedule considerably. And well, 14 states have le- legalized medical marijuana already, and you know California has got a uh, proposition up to make marijuana just legal, just legal, anyway. just straight legal. Well, we've talked about how this was has been going on now for 30 years, so it might as well happen uh, now. As uh, you know, we've lost a lot of tax money there. Oh, well, 40 we billion 40 billion dollar industry in California alone, okay? And Schwarzenegger knows it. Some uh, I would like this money he's thinking, you know, to balance the budget. One of the interesting things that's happening is that the people that are becoming aware of just how discriminatory this is as a business practice is the hemp industry itself, the industrial hemp industry. Paper, mm-hmm. rope, mm-hmm. all of that. They're beginning to say, wait a minute. And they went back and they found out the following interesting fact, which is one of the largest supporters of, of, of criminalizing marijuana were the newspapers because they had huge interests in pulp forests. And hemp is a substitute, a paper substitute for wood pulp. Definitely is. So it, oh, yeah. It definitely yes, yes, yes. It, it threatened them. So the very people huh. we would look to to open the story up, right, they were threatened because they had these huge forests, mainly in Canada, that were used entirely for pulp. Do you know until 1890, there was really no pulp paper? It was all made from linen and hemp, hemp and, and cotton. Yeah. Hmm. I wish I could get the New York Times in cotton, you know? And after I read it, I can wear it, you know? <laughs> just, just, yeah, pull it on. Pull it on over your head. Well, it's the thing about uh, uh, medical marijuana. I mean, you said that the doctors can recommend it, like... I think you should get high. Well, I, what, what, would, it, what I mean, it means is if you get the little certificate and, and a DC cop finds you with uh, two ounces or less and uh, you've got this, he's going to leave you alone. It's like, you know, hey, please, let, move on, you know. But that who's going to be the first senator or representative who's going to walk into the chambers with his medical marijuana certificate and a baggie of, you know, O.C. ganja? I don't know, but he's going to get a big hand from a lot of Americans. That's just about it for Radio Free Oz. But we can't end a show without a poem. Yes, and a new word. This is from the cyber uh, war world. Uh, It's called malware. Malware. Serves our anxiety. Spoons out ones and noughts. Forks the once singular path. Knifes our lifelines. And guys named Kim raise chopsticks above our uncollective noodles. Hey, no politics at all can really give a nation focus, right? You've just had the best of the best of Radio Free Oz in your ears. Our master of ones and zeros is John Cumming, Phil Fountain. Makes it all look pretty on RadioFreeOz.com. 
Scott Wilde, our social media guru, Tom Gedwillow, the webmaster. Dave Maloney, our audio engineer. Bill McIntyre produces the show. My co-host is David Osman. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, and I'll see you next Monday.